Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome, William, add my welcome to our online virtual worship service today. My name is Preston. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Pete's, uh, and I will uh, be getting the opportunity to open God's Word with us today. So I realized this week as I was preparing this sermon on the text that Alistair just read that five years ago in Lent 2016 uh, was when I preached for the first time at St. Peter's, and it was actually on this exact passage, except from the Gospel of Matthew. And so I opened it up and was looking at it uh, from five years ago before I started working on this sermon, and I am grateful that I get another chance at it uh, today from five years ago. Uh, if any of you happened to be at that Ash Wednesday service on that day, I felt a little bad for you as it felt to me as I was reading a B-minus essay out loud to, to you all. So I'm glad I have the chance for a little redemption today. So will you start by praying with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you and thank you that you are a God uh, who knows us and who walks with us. We thank you for your word today. We thank you for the gospel of Luke. Thank you for enabling Luke to write these words down and um, give us this little glimpse into Jesus' life that Jesus uh, must have told others about, this little entry from Jesus' journal. So we pray, God, that you will open our eyes and our hearts to know you, Lord Jesus, more clearly and to love you more dearly through it. In your name we pray, amen. Well, today we'll be concluding the mini-series we've been doing on temptation. We've been saying a couple things over and over in this series. First, that temptation is any enticement away from God's will. And second, that when temptation comes, it always strikes at right of the core of who we are. It strikes after our identity. This is true in Jesus' life. His identity is blessed and affirmed in uh, Luke chapter 3 when he's baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan River, and the Father says over him, You are my son, and you I am well pleased. Then in the desert, Jesus goes out into the desert, and we witness Satan, the deceiver, launch a full-scale attack on Jesus' identity as the son. Two weeks ago, Lloyd showed us that in the first temptation, Jesus' belovedness is under attack. Last week, Alistair looked at the second temptation and helped us see how Satan tries to manipulate compassion into compromise. And as a side note, if you're just jumping in today and you're really wrestling with, um, how do I think about Satan and this situation of Jesus and Satan sort of doing battle in the wilderness and demonic attack uh, go back and listen to last week's sermon. It was unpacked a little bit there. But today, we'll look at the final temptation that Satan throws at Jesus in the desert. The first two seem a little bit obvious. Make some bread for yourself. You're hungry. You haven't eaten in 40 days. Take control. And the second, here's all the power in the world. Take it and do what you want with it. And then worship me, says Satan. He's appealed to the desire for control. He's appealed to the human lust for power. But this last temptation is a little different. Satan comes at Jesus a little more subtly. He even uses scripture to do so, which if nothing else shows us that God's word can and is used in ways that turn God's truth into a lie. Satan himself does this 
And so we shouldn't be surprised that many human teachers today also use God's word to introduce false ideas. But this time, the temptation that comes at Jesus from Satan is similar to what came to Adam and Eve way back in the garden from the very same deceiver. The invitation, remember, to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to become like God. And remember how that serpent had whispered to Eve, did God really say, did God really say that you will surely die if you eat this fruit? And now to Jesus, the same deceiver comes and he injects a question to Jesus. He gives him a question into his mind that he wasn't actually looking for. He makes a suggestion that Jesus wasn't asking for. Sort of like Amazon does every single time I log on and they show me what buyers like me have been looking at. I really didn't need to know that. Now all I can think about for the next hours, these things I need, but I don't need. I didn't ask for that suggestion, okay? But this is what happens, and it's similar to what happens to Jesus. But the question that comes to him is this. Are you so sure you're remembering things correctly? Are you so sure that you're the beloved Son of God? How can you be? Do you think God really has your back when it comes down to it? How do you know? Has he proved it? See, it's not a question that comes in good faith. It's a question that doubts what God has already made clear. This is what Satan throws at Jesus. He's the father of lies. And this type of lie is particularly difficult to detect because it comes wrapped in the disguise of pursuing truth. You know, I just want to know for sure if God loves me. I just want to be sure and know it's true. I don't want to live a lie if he doesn't. That would be inauthentic of me. So I know, I'll give God a little test to find out. This is how Satan tempts Jesus. He invites Jesus to find out if God really loves him, if he really has his back, by posing a little test, a little experiment. So this is the question we'll explore together today. What happens when we put God to the test? What happens when we put God to the test? Let's look at just verses 9 to 13 again. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So what happens when we put God to the test? I want to approach this question from two ways, because there are actually two different tests going on in this scene. First, there's the test that Satan invites Jesus to put God the Father through. Satan invites Jesus to find out if God the Father really has his back. How? By putting his life on the line. He invites Jesus to climb up to the highest point of the temple. Some think Satan has in mind a spot at the temple which overlooked the Kidron Valley and dropped straight off 450 feet below to the valley floor. 
Satan invites Jesus to do something that when we step back and think about it, is horrifying. Throw yourself off. Jump from that highest point of the temple and see what happens. On the surface, it's clear that this is a demonic suggestion. Several times in Luke's gospel, we see people physically hurting themselves as the result of demonic influence. Words of death are not from God. But Satan says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, then you'll be fine. God himself will save you. Because Psalm 91 says so. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against one of those hard stones at the bottom of the Kidron Valley. But what is the invitation Satan is really making here to Jesus? He's fishing. He's casting a line and seeing if there might be anything in Jesus' heart that would compel him to take the bait. And the bait is this. It's beginning to entertain the the thought. Yeah, maybe God doesn't have my back. Maybe he isn't really for me after all. So I will put him to the test and see. I'll find out. I'll put him to a test that I create, that I set the terms for, that I determine what the outcome should be, and find out if God is, after all, for me. And if Satan can hook Jesus on that lie, he's done. Jesus' mission will be over, because there is a lot coming Jesus' way, like the cross, that anyone in their right mind could look at and say, yeah, God definitely doesn't have his back. He's crucified. But Jesus doesn't fall for this. He's far too smart. He's too strong. He knows what's going on, and he has the words of the Father deeply imprinted on his heart. You are mine. I am yours. You're my beloved. He does not take the bait. He doesn't doubt God's faithfulness to him or his goodness And Satan has also made a crucial oversight about God's character here. He's overlooked something that many of us today also overlook, because it's not the most comfortable truth. The scholar Joel Green puts it this way, the devil fails to recognize an even deeper mystery, that divine rescue may come through suffering and death, and not only before and from them. God's rescue, even for his own son, may come through suffering and death, not only from them. And of course, that's exactly what happens. But Satan, the god of this age, whose currency is the kingdoms of the world and who gets things done through manipulative power and pulling on the strings of people's weaknesses and fears, cannot comprehend this truth. Neither can the people who are mocking Jesus as he dies on the cross at the end of Luke's gospel, who in chapter 35 taunt and say, he saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ, the chosen one of God. Neither can many people today handle this. God's rescue coming through suffering and death? No thanks. I'll take God's rescue from suffering and death, thank you. But... In Jesus' upside-down kingdom, God redeems suffering and even death. 
God holds those who suffer and opens up space for his power to be made known in dark places. A friend of mine, Ben, has suffered for the last decade with chronic illness and pain. Ben has told me, we've talked on numerous occasions, that because of his suffering, people all the time open up to him about their deep suffering and struggles. Ben recognizes that through his suffering, because of his suffering, God has created a refuge for others to be understood, to be able to open up safely and to allow God's truth to penetrate into darkness in a way that couldn't happen without his own suffering. But Satan has made this oversight. He can't believe that. Surely the Son of God himself will do whatever he can to escape suffering and death, won't he? Jesus puts him in his place. You don't put the Lord your God to the test. You never underestimate what God can and will do with the bleakest of situations. Notice Jesus doesn't deny what Satan brought up from Psalm 91, that God will will watch over those who dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. But his redirection shows us that Satan's use of it is wrong. It doesn't fit here because trying to manipulate God into a contrived test so that God must prove his love, isn't living faithfully in the shelter of the Almighty. It's an act of faithlessness. And that is why Jesus rebukes Satan. You don't do that. But why? What happens to us when we put God to the test? When we set the terms and tell God, this is what needs to happen so that I can know for sure whether you love me or not, whether you have my back or not, whether you're good or not. What happens is this. We distance ourselves from God. We put distance between us and God the Father because we reject what Dallas Willard once called the configuration of reality that we live in, the configuration where God is a good Father, the configuration where we are little children walking hand in hand with God the Father, who is both king and creator of the cosmos and also close enough to walk with us and hold our hands each and every day. In this configuration of reality, which is what Jesus lived in all the time and what Jesus taught, prayer is holding God's hand like a little child, pulling on his sleeve and saying, Dad, Look at what you've done. Look at what you've created. This world, it's amazing. It's beautiful. You did this. Thank you. Prayer is those basic and most intimate words spoken, making vulnerable requests known. Dad, I'm tired. Will you carry me home? This is the configuration of reality that Jesus gifts to you. But testing God distances us from that reality. How? Dad, if you love me, you'd let me eat all the candy. Dad, if you love me, you'd let me watch all the shows. Dad, if you love me, you'd let me do what I want. If you love me. When we set the terms and tell God how he can prove his love, prove that he has our back, prove that he is good, we doubt this configuration of reality. 
that Jesus has made possible and given a relational, a relational life with God, who is our Father. And then we buy another reality where God exists to meet my desires, to make me feel good, and to align the world as I see fit. When we test God, we doubt the good reality, and we distance ourselves from it. Sometimes we test God out of insecurity, and sometimes we test God out of pride. The insecure heart tests God like this. It can sound like this. I'm not so sure if God really cares about me, because things are hard. So here's the deal, God. You can show me your love. You can prove it. We've, we've wanted a child for so many years. We've wanted to have a baby. You can allow this. You can make it happen. Do it, God. And we'll know that you really love us. But it's a test. On our terms, with the outcomes you desire. No, I'm not saying it's wrong to ask and plead with God, our good Father, about the things on our heart. By all means, do so. God wants to hear them. He will listen. And I want to acknowledge that these things that are shattered dreams in our lives can put us in such a shaky place, whether it's something like infertility or illness or estranged relationships or something else. These are deeply painful and disorienting for our faith. Yes, but God doesn't jump through hoops to prove his love. Jumping through hoops never satisfies an insecure heart. Consistent, steadfast presence does. Over the long haul, God's presence with us, even through death, shows us God's love to be true. But there's another way we test God. Sometimes it's different. Sometimes it's out of pride. It might sound like this. God, are you on the right side of history or not? We've seen all the pitfalls of traditional religion. Everyone has. Come on. The oppression of slaves and women. And still the stifling, narrow ethics, especially around sexuality. I mean, come on. We can do away with all that now, right? So if you can find a way to tow my party line, God, then we can have a deal. I can be a Jesus follower as long as you, Jesus, don't offend the right people. This test comes from pride. And you can picture the young child insisting on their own rules, can't you? It also reveals an independence, an independence that destroys relationship over time. And breaks the Father's heart. To you, Jesus looks with love and says the same thing. You don't put the Lord your God to the test. Listen, you can ask your questions. You can bring your doubts. You can journey through deconstruction even. And all of us need some false beliefs and some false ideas about God deconstructed. That's not a bad thing. But when you enter into this vulnerable place, and it is a vulnerable place... Pay attention to your posture there. Are you taking a sledgehammer of questions to your faith, fueled by a post-everything world that would just as happy be a post-Jesus world too? Putting God on trial with every swing of the hammer. 
Or are you carefully looking and seeking and asking, praying in trusted community, who's reminding you at every step of the way that God is there, that there's some things you don't need to deconstruct because we're an Easter people. Things like the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, the gospel of his kingdom, the narrow way of discipleship that cuts against the grain of the world in every single age. It always does and will. So yes, bring your doubts. I have my own that I bring to God. I have my own that I bring to God. Your pastor has doubts that I bring to Jesus too, and I have to open to him and wrestle with him and bring honestly before him and submit and then trust and walk in faith. This is what's called faith, seeking understanding, and it's a normal part of the Christian life. It's a normal part of following Jesus, but there's a difference between this and putting God to the test. There's a difference between the two. Jesus says, don't put God to the test. He doesn't say you can't bring your doubts and questions. But don't put God to the test. It will strain your faith. Because God is not an algorithm. He's not a system. He's not a candy machine. He's personal. God created every nuance of human personality and beauty. Think about that for a second. And if you've ever been tested in a relationship, if someone's ever put that on you, you know how it feels. You know the skepticism and mistrust lying underneath the surface. It doesn't feel good. And when we do this to God, the configuration of reality where, where you're walking hand in hand with him, it will grow dim. It will grow dim. But remember how I said at the beginning that there's two tests going on here. There's two different ones, and the second test is the test Jesus is experiencing in the moment. He's invited to put God on test, but he's also experiencing one in the moment. Satan invites Jesus to put God through the one of him jumping off the temple, but in the moment, Jesus uh, is facing Satan face to face, and this test is a little different. First, it's, it's different because, as we said, Satan is twisting some scripture in an attempt to manipulate Jesus to becoming unfaithful. And this is rampant in our culture, too. We have to be aware of that. Here's two quick examples. Matthew 7.1, do not judge, or you too will be judged. Famous words of Jesus. Well, this does not mean that we are not to identify and grieve over, and when necessary, rebuke evil and sin. I've heard this several times recently in the popular conversation in reference to a famous Christian apologist who recently was unveiled to do horrible things. People responding, who am I to judge, lest I be judged? This is twisting scripture. No, we're not to pretend like we're God in these situations, and we're not to throw stones at a grave, but we must insist on naming sin and injustice, especially in the church, and participate in Jesus and in his kingdom to point to a better way, to point to his kingdom come and his will be done. Here's another. Acts 2.36 says, God made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Which one popular teacher 
The Catholic Franciscan Richard Rohr uses to teach that Jesus and Christ are entirely different things, which is a classic Christian ancient heresy. Rohr says that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are mostly talking about Jesus, the historical figure who healed and taught. But in Paul's letters, he's talking about the eternal Christ mystery rather than Jesus of Nazareth. With this division, it allows Rohr not to deny the resurrection, but at least to relativize and reconceptualize it in a gray way. But a quick look at Luke's gospel shows us that there is no division between Christ and Jesus. Jesus is God incarnate. And throughout Acts, Paul insists that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Again, just twisting Scripture. So what Jesus faces here in the desert, you and I face too. But even more importantly than this, that there's something else. This test is different because it's about Jesus doing what only Jesus can do. And as the fully human Jesus and the fully divine Son of God, Jesus does not fail the test. He suffers and he defeats Satan here. And he goes through all of that for me and for you. Because the reality is temptation is going to come our way. And at times we will fail. We will. Our identity will come under attack. And we will believe lies. We'll all fall into temptation at one point or another. We may be manipulated by our compassion to celebrate what is wrong or out of insecurity or pride, we will fail and, and put God to the test, distance ourselves from God the Father. But the good news, again, is that in this test, Jesus, the Son of God, did not fail. And he is the great high priest, which means he gives his life and he gives his story and his victory of sin to you to live into. Jesus, the priest who is in perfect, loving relationship with God the Father, he takes our hand when we've pushed God away. He takes it, and he brings it back, and he joins it in with God the Father's hand, and, and that loving clasp holds them together tight. And the good news is that God, when he does this, God is a good father. He's a good dad, and good dads don't shame their kids. Good dads don't blow up and storm out of the room. They don't leak out passive aggressiveness. They don't sit there and let the kid wallow in fear either, or in pride. Good fathers remain patient, attentive, present. They don't accommodate an immature request, but they don't ignore it either. They take that hand and theirs, and they show a better way forward. And that's what God is like. Not shaming, not angry, not passive-aggressive, not manipulative. God doesn't manipulate. But good and trustworthy and faithful. Because when God allows us to go through tests, whether we pass them or whether we fail them, at the end of the day, it's only for one reason. And it's so that we will trust more deeply in God's faithfulness 
and His goodness, His care over us, His consistency in holding us, and not our own faithfulness. Trusting in God's faithfulness and care over us, not our own. Will you pray with me?